The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 39. In this episode, we finally reach the end of Act 1. We ended last week with the high drama of the ghost's voice coming from below the stage, urging Hamlet's fellow watchers to swear not to say a word about what they've seen and heard. Hamlet is at his most energetic, eagerly dragging Horatio and Marcellus to various new locations around the stage in what is perhaps some kind of binding ritual to seal up their promise. Amid all of this, Horatio tries to be there for his friend, but cannot help share a comment on Hamlet's behaviour and demands. Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. It's interesting that Horatio doesn't swear by God, or by grace or goodness, or by anything more basic than day and night. Given the things that he's been through throughout this act, he can be forgiven for relying on only the most basic certainties when the sun comes up and when it goes down. All other bets are off. And what he's seen is wondrous strange. Shakespeare is quite a fan of using wondrous as a replacement for very. In other plays, we hear descriptions of things that are wondrous cold or wondrous pitiful, and indeed wondrous strange. Never is it more appropriate than here, since what Horatio has seen is definitely a wonder. Hamlet takes Horatio's line and puts a clever spin on it in response. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. Since ancient times, proverbs have always counselled that it is right to bid welcome to a stranger. So Hamlet encourages Horatio to trust in what he's been seeing, to welcome this new information that will clearly have seismic impact. Hamlet qualifies this encouragement with another rather famous line. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Some editions of the text for this play say our philosophy, and some say your philosophy. There are, unsurprisingly, scholar articles out there to be found that debate the inclusion or absence of that single letter Y. Hamlet could be using the word your as others will elsewhere in the play, talking about your mole, your water, your philosophy rather generally. There are more things out there than philosophy can deal with. He could also be talking specifically about Horatio's philosophy, or indeed a philosophy that he and Horatio both espouse. They are both students at Wittenberg, the home in Germany of Martin Luther and the cradle of European Protestant reform. Of all the universities across Europe, Why would Shakespeare have sent his protagonist to this particular German city? There is a dramatic precedent in Christopher Marlowe's Dr Faustus, which is also set in Wittenberg. The intellectual protagonist of that play spends a good deal of its drama communicating with devils, and perhaps Shakespeare relied on an audience's knowledge of that play too. I'm kind of fascinated at the notion that Shakespeare could have relied on his audience's knowledge of both these Wittenberg references. Luther and Faust, and had them inform an audience's opinion of Hamlet. Here he is, a young man at the turn of the 17th century, or whenever he thinks the play is set, studying in the Protestant heart of Europe, who now somehow meets his father's ghost in the middle of the night. Not only that, all of the evidence seems to point to the fact that said ghost is in fact dwelling in purgatory whose existence had officially been denied since the 1560s. Horatio, whether his thoughts are closer to Aristotle or to Dr Faustus, 
is unlikely to have any frame of reference for all of this going on. There really are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in his philosophy. As if that wasn't enough to be thinking about, we now get Hamlet's most manic speech yet, as he pleads with his comrades not to let on at all. But come, here as before, never, so help you mercy, how strange or odd soe'er I bear myself, as perchance hereafter shall think me to put an antic disposition on, that you, at such times seeing me, never shall, with arms encumbered thus, or this head shake, or by pronouncing of some doubtful phrase as, well, well, we know, or we could, and if we would, or if we list to speak, or there be, and if they might, or such ambiguous giving out to note, that you know aught of me, this not to do, so grace and mercy at your most need help you, swear. As well as the difficulty of delivering such a flow of tumbling, connected, rushing thoughts, the actor playing Hamlet must also perform the various elements he describes. There's even room for some comedy in here, as Hamlet insists that Marcellus and Horatio promise not to let on. He appeals, at the beginning and the end of the speech, to their hope for mercy, that quality not shown to his father's ghost. He wants them to promise, no matter how strange his behaviour may start to appear, that they will never stand by and fold their arms or shake their heads, which the text seems to insist that Hamlet himself should do, or pronounce doubtful phrases along the lines of, well, we know why he's doing that, or we could tell you if we hadn't promised, or if we wanted to, we could explain, or etc. Hamlet is insisting they promise not to let on at all that they know anything. They must appear to know nothing about what might make him change his behaviour. At the expense of any hoped-for grace or mercy, he makes them swear. And to seal the deal, the ghost rumbles up from below for one last shout, and he too calls, swear. There's actually no agreement between the three major texts as to when the men actually make this pact. Some editors like to put in a stage direction along the lines of, they swear, somewhere around about now in the scene, but it's worth noting that none of the source texts has any such thing. Whatever choice is made by a production, and wherever it happens in the text, or indeed wherever it happens on the stage, Shakespeare hasn't written any words for it. My instinct is that it should come before the next line, which is Hamlet's farewell of sorts to the ghost. He says, rest, rest, perturbed spirit. This is presumably only possible because they have indeed made the pact just as Brutus dies in Julius Caesar telling the ghost of Caesar to be still, now that he has been avenged. So Hamlet can surely only tell the ghost to rest once his demands have been met. Hamlet will certainly remember him, as he was told to do, and the other men have sworn not to reveal anything. With all of these instructions carried out, as it were, Hamlet gets back to business. So, gentlemen, with all my love I do commend me to you, and what so poor a man as Hamlet is may do, to express his love and friending to you, God willing shall not lack. Let us go in together, and still your fingers on your lips, I pray. The time is out of joint, O oh, cursed spite, that ever I was born to set it right. Nay, come, let's go together. 
I wonder if there's a small promise from Hamlet here, that he might pay the men for their quote-unquote love. What so poor a man as Hamlet is, uh, let's remember he is a prince after all. Whether he's merely promising his love and friending, a word that Shakespeare uses nowhere else, or whether he's promising that the men shall not lack their reward once he, perhaps, becomes king, is totally up for interpretation. He insists that they go in together, with their fingers on their lips, whether metaphorically or literally. Hamlet ends the scene with what could be played as an aside, or indeed a small indication to Horatio and Marcellus of things to come. He explains that the time is out of joint. Oh, cursed spite! that ever I was born to set it right. Whatever about his melancholy and his dissatisfaction at the beginning of the play, we see here something of a sense of purpose in Hamlet at last. He speaks of having a sense of what he was born to do, not admittedly the most positive life purpose, but at least it's something that gives us an impetus to move into Act Two. Just as he insisted when he first saw Horatio, Hamlet ends the scene insisting on their equality, Come, let's go together. Again, there's various options as to how to stage this. Perhaps the men hold a door or attempt to let Hamlet go first. Whatever a production chooses to do, Hamlet equates himself with the two men as a final move to enlist their loyalty and silence. And with that, the three men exit and we reach the end of Act One. It is perhaps worth noting that act divisions really only exist on the page. I don't think I've ever seen a production of any Shakespeare play that in any way announced scene or indeed act changes. So today's landmark is more textual than performative. It's been nine whole months since this podcast was launched and we have about 36 more months to go before we finish it. While of course Hamlet has never quite been out of style, it's certainly in at the moment. This coming week, if you're in Dublin, you can go see Pan Pan Theatre's extraordinary show Playing the Dane at the Abbey Theatre, or if you're in London, you can go see Hamlet at the Globe, starring artistic director Michelle Terry as Hamlet. And if that's not enough, you can already book tickets for another production at the Gate Theatre in Dublin, which will be part of the Dublin Theatre Festival in September and October this year, and will star Ruth Negga in the title role. With this many Hamlets to see and enjoy, I hope you'll spread the word about the podcast, and indeed join me next time for another bonus episode before we get cracking with Act 2.